today is May 5, 2020, and this is episode number six of Blurred Laws and Life with me, your host, Richard Bush. Last week, we had on the great Jan Gay, who boldly pronounced, boldly, that Motown beats Stax Records. So without further ado, I have brought back on the show today, Al Bell. He's fired up. He's angry. He's mad. He's full of vigor. And he is ready to defend the honor of Stax Records. Okay, last week I had on the program, on my podcast, the great, wonderful, lovely, incredible, stunning Jan Gay. Jan was adamant that as much as she loved Al Bell, Motown, let me say this, Stax Records cannot hold a candle to Motown. She said, BG every day, I think is what she said. So what did I do? I had to bring back on this show, Al Bell, Mr. Stax Records. Al, are you there? Yes, I am. You're not hiding. You're not cowering. You are here as a man. I'm here as a man. To stand up for Stax Records. Yes, I so am. let me ask you something, Al. Don't be shy. Don't be scared. Don't be intimidated by Jan Gay. She's intimidating. There's no question about it. She's very intimidating. But I want you to tell me the truth. Respond to Jan Gay. Put her in her place. Is it Stax Records or is it Motown? Tell me. Tell the world. I'm going to respond and what I say to you and the words that come out of my mouth, I will say before the creator of the universe. As a matter of fact, I was listening- Are you calling me the creator of the universe? Because you're saying it to me. So I'm, are you saying that you're saying that? Are you, I'm, that's an incredible I'm compliment. That, I'm, I'm saying this like I say, when you take <laughs> when you take and put someone and have them to swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help them God. Okay. That's I just I'm wanted saying. to clarify that for the record. I'm glad, I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> when I heard and felt Jan Gay say what she said, I literally shouted. I mean, I hollered and screamed because I knew, I, I didn't believe that under any other circumstances would that position have been taken. I, if it had it not been for Barry Gordy, there would not have been an Al Bell. Had it not been for Barry Gordy, we, not, we would not have had the success in African-American black music that we've had. Barry Gordy broke the ceiling. Barry Gordy did the impossible. And if you go back to that period, I salute him. He is my dear friend, and I would do anything that he asked me to do. Because he's, he's very gaudy. I mean, uh, at that time, uh, Richard, we had maybe about 40 or 50 stations in America that played 
black music uh, formatted that were formatted to play black music. And the problem we had was getting our music on the top 40 or the white stations because they just didn't buy into the sound of our music. Well, Barry Gordy came up with a production musical art concept for our music that caused white radio stations, our top 40 music programmers to play it. And it broke the ceiling. Barry Gordon broke the ceiling, broke open the door, and I was able to follow in behind him. And don't you think for one minute that I didn't. <laughs> I watched everything that they were doing. We had, we had a different kind of music sound-wise, rhythm-wise, and otherwise, even in terms of the lyrical content. But I watched and saw the magic of Barry and how he caused his writers to write with what was a great hook line. I mean, you could sink into and remember his hook line before you remembered all of the songs, but he had you singing with him. And he had a feel and a sound that Top 40 really appreciated. Now, what that did for us, that put us in a position where we were not confined to just getting our music played sometimes on the 40 or 50 black program stations, because at that time, what would happen We'd get played on those 40 or 50 stations, and by the time we reached the top 10 or number one on their charts, our music was covered by Pat Boone, the Elvis Presley's, and the likes of the other white artists who could then take it and sing the same songs, and it'd be played on those stations, and, and the music would then be programmed to the general market, and they would sell more product than us, get paid more for their performances and all of that. Well, none of that would have happened had it not been for Barry Gordy and what he created in Motown Records. Nothing before and nothing shall come after that. It was a phenomenon. And I salute- So let me ask you, let me ask you something, because I don't feel that was a wonderful answer, but it does not quite answer my question. Okay. And it's a very important question because as I said to you and I said to actually said to Jan, the fate of the universe depends on this answer. And so what my question is, really, are you saying that Marvin is better than Isaac? Oh. That hold on, hold on. That Smokey is better than Otis. That the writers of Motown, Holland Dozier Holland, Ben Whitfield are better than the songwriters of Stax Records. That's really my question. Who were the more talented writers and the more talented performers? If you put Motown up against Stax, that's the tough question. That's the million-dollar question right there. Well, I think that's uh, uh, an unfair question uh, because— It's my show. I get to ask the question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Only you, Richard Bush. <laughs> Only you. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> well, let me tell you why I say that. I'm saying that because I view music as art. So you can't, it's unfair to take a Marvin Gaye who's unique and rare in his own right and compare him to Otis Redding who's unique 
and rare in his own right. I mean, they're in separate categories. It's like the great painters. You can't take one great painter and compare another great painter with that great painter. And the same with the writers and the same with the singers. I mean, they were all unique and they were all rare and different. We just happened to be fortunate enough to attract them. And the ones that we attracted at Stax was different from the ones that were attracted by Barry and that Barry, Barry related to at Motown. So, but, but what I'm saying is that we could not have gotten that music exposed to the masses because of racism, because of racism. We could not have gotten that music exposed to the masses if Barry Gordy hadn't come up with a way to take those rare, unique artists and produce a musical art form sound that made it easier and was attractive for white programmed radio stations to play them. So he opened the door for us so we could get our unique Otis Redding played and our unique uh, Marvin Gaye on his side played. I mean, he opened the door. So I, I think, and if he hadn't opened it, we wouldn't have gotten it done. We wouldn't have been able to get it done. So I can't, I can't speak of it any other way because I would be misrepresenting the facts and the truth. So I'm taking two takeaways. There are two takeaways, in my view, from your answer. Number one, you are an incredible politician. You should have gone into politics. And number two, you are scared of Jan. You are petrified. You are scared of Jan Gay. That's that's what I'm taking from this. Because I have to ask you this question, and it's the last time I'm going to ask it. And if you refuse to answer it, it's like a deposition, Al. You know that? It's like a real deposition. I'm not, I'm not letting yeah. go. Yeah. Gun to your head. Fate of the universe at stake. Who do you take? The Motown artists and writers or Stax Records artists and writers as the better, the greater? Gun to your head. The greater, the better throws me. But in order to answer your question, I understand what you're saying and what you're asking me. Motown, Barry Gordy. It was hard for you to get that out, wasn't it? It was very hard for you to get that out. But not because it isn't the truth and the facts, but because of when I explained to you as it related to art and the circumstances and the situation of that time as it related to our music being played in America. And I'm saying... You're basically saying... How can you compare Rembrandt and Da Vinci and say which one is better? Yeah, 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 yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. I will accept that. I still think you're scared of Jan. (laughs) I love Jan. (laughs) And shout (laughs) it. And I got to tell you, I don't think, thank you and thank Jan, I don't think that question would have been raised and no one would have known and would have heard me say what I had to say if you hadn't raised it of Jan and Jan responded the way she said, and I felt her saying and heard her say, so sorry, Al. I said, you don't have to be sorry. I said, you don't have to be sorry, Jan. I agree with you. (laughs) 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 Don't be sorry. I agree with you 100%. (laughs) I understand. Did you listen to my um, podcast with Jan? Wasn't it great? Oh man. I don't know what you're doing. When I say what you're doing, what you're doing is phenomenal. It's great. And thank God for you. (laughs) Well, thank God for you.
Al Bell. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming back on. That's really enjoyable. I love having fun with you. And when, when I want to put you on the spot again, I will on. have you back on Blurred Laws. <laughs> I love life. it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and I love Jan Gay. She doesn't intimidate me. We are one of a kind. We are one spirit. We are one accord. Yes. In that regard, we share the same sentiment because I love her and I love you. Yeah, thank you. I love you and I love Dan. Thank you, my brother. Take All care, right. my man. All right. Bye now. Now, this show being called Blur Laws and Life has led me to wonder how I could best illustrate that lawsuits and their outcomes can never be determined at the outset and that the outcome many times depends on the judge that you get, the jury that you get, the lawyers that are involved. And it finally occurred to me the perfect example. And I thought that today I would discuss these three independent but very related cases that I was involved with and how the outcomes were decided not by the initial trial court judge in any of the three cases, but by the court of appeals. And in two of the three, the court of appeals reached very different decisions than the district court judge. The background of these cases are very interesting. The stories behind them are amazing. And the phrase truth is stranger than fiction, comes to mind with all three. I have mentioned several times in my podcast that on May 4th, 2001, I launched on behalf of my clients literally 478 cases of alleged copyright infringement of my clients' music against basically the entire rap music industry. What happened after we filed those cases is the district judge stayed all of the cases except the first 10. And the judge said, we need to get an idea of what we're dealing with here and how substantial and how valid these claims are. So he stayed all litigation except the first 10 cases. And the very first case was a case entitled Bridgeport Music versus Dimension Films. And that case involved the digital sampling of a chord, three or four second chord of a Westbound Records sound recording of a George Clinton song entitled Get Off Your Ass and Jam. And the district court dismissed that case on summary judgment, the district court ruled that even if, even though the sound recording had been digitally sampled, digitally lifted, that the three or four seconds that was lifted was insignificant, that it had been cut up and 
played in a way that one would not even recognize that it came from Get Off Your Ass and Jam, and that it was neither what's called qualitatively or quantitatively important to the songs at issue, and therefore dismissed the case on de minimis grounds. And after the district court decision dismissing the Dimension Films case, which was a major blow to that litigation and really called into question how we would resolve and do in the other 460 cases we still had going on, I found myself one day over at my uh, one of my opponent's law firms to meet with him to discuss various other issues with respect to other cases. And I was sitting in his lobby, and they had their firm book out of notable achievements, a PR piece, and highlighted prominently was their victory over us in the Dimension Films case. And when he came out to the lobby, I, being young and brash as I was, um, I turned to him and I said, Bob, when we reverse this at the Court of Appeals, I hope you not only take this out, but highlight that you lost. And he chuckled and said, good luck. Now that lawyer, and I'm going to discuss him um, in a future podcast, his name was Bob Sullivan. Bob passed away a few years after that um, from leukemia, actually. Bob, he was not only a good friend of mine, but demonstrated on one particular occasion character and honesty and integrity of the type that you just don't find in this field very often. Um, I will tell Bob's story and in, in the story that we had that um, where Bob actually had to be a witness in one of the cases. And um, I'm happy to do it because the story I think needs to be told and I will do it in a future podcast. We appealed that decision. And we appealed it on the ground that unlike a musical composition, a sound recording, the digital lifting of a sound recording, should not be subjected to a de minimis standard. That if one takes, lifts, samples, the actual sound of a sound recording, that should be copyright infringement without regard to whether it was important to either song, without regard to any de minimis analysis. And our basis was the plain language of the Copyright Act itself, the Copyright Act of 1976, to be precise. Section 106 of the Copyright Act of 1976 provides that an exclusive right of a copyright owner is to prepare derivative works based upon the copyrighted work, which means a new work that contains a portion of another work, of an older work. Most importantly, there is a sound recording section of the Copyright Act, and the sound recording portion of the copyright statute says, quote, the exclusive right of the owner of copyright in a sound recording under Clause 1 of Section 106 is limited to the right 
to duplicate the sound recording in the form of phonorecords or copies that directly or indirectly recapture the actual sounds fixed in the recording. And it goes on to say, the exclusive rights of the owner of copyright in a sound recording under clauses 1 and 2 of section 106 do not extend to the making or duplication of another sound recording that, and this is important, consists entirely, consists entirely of an independent fixation of other sounds, even though such sounds imitate or simulate those in the copyrighted sound recording. So what does that mean in English? What that means in English is that Congress was giving others the right to cover songs so long as the covered song does not capture any of the actual sounds of the original song, the actual sound recording of the original song, even though the sounds imitate or simulate those in the sound recording. So it's giving, it's balancing the fact that we're going to say that covers do not constitute an infringement of the sound recording so long as none of the actual sounds of the sound recording are taken. And that's where we got them. We got them from that language I mentioned earlier, which says the exclusive rights of the owner of a copyright in a sound recording do not extend to the making or duplication of another sound recording that quote-unquote consists entirely of an independent fixation of other sounds. So we argue that if someone takes the actual sound of a prior sound recording, even if it's one second of it, then the new sound recording does not consist entirely of an independent fixation of other sounds, and therefore, by law and by statute, and by a plain reading of this statute, constitutes copyright infringement. And guess what? The court agreed. The court ruled that a plain reading of the statute meant that if you take even a second or two of an older sound recording, digitally sample, digitally lift the actual sound of a pre-existing sound recording, then you have committed copyright infringement of that sound recording without regard to a de minimis analysis. The court actually said, get a license or do not sample. The court went on to say that there's a practical reason for that, that there must be something special in the original sound recording if one is going to replicate it and that by doing so the creator of the new sound recording is saving money by not having to hire uh, musicians and by having to duplicate the work and that they should in fact license that sound recording if they intend to use the actual sounds no matter how small of a use they make. This, of course, is particularly important because in rap music, it is not uncommon for a relatively small um, portion of music to be looped throughout the entirety of the song. So that was obviously a very important result in the litigation. Um, that decision then impacted the majority of the cases and certainly helped us settle those cases based upon 
the reversal of the district court and the finding that the digital lifting of even a second or two of a pre-existing sound recording constituted copyright infringement. Now, that decision was and still remains highly controversial. To my knowledge, no circuit other than the Sixth Circuit, which governs Tennessee and Ohio and other Mid-South states, um, has uh, followed that decision, and other courts have been critical of it. Which allows us to fast forward to 2011 or 2012. And before I talk about the actual case, let me give you a little bit of background. There is a producer who produced many of Madonna's big hits named Shep Pettibone. In the early 1980s, before Shep began producing for Madonna, he did some production work for a um, company called South Soul Orchestra, South Soul Records. And one of the songs that Shep recorded, produced for South Soul, was a song called Love Break. And in Love Break, there was a one or two second horn hit, very short horn hit that sounds nothing more than a eh, something along that, <laughs> along those lines. Now we fast forward to the mid to late 1980s and Shep is producing for Madonna and is producing the song Vogue. And Shep had a personal assistant that assisted him in some of his recordings. And there was an engineer who was also working at the studio where Vogue was being produced and who became friendly with Shep and worked with Shep on other projects after Vogue. There was also in Vogue a one or two second horn hit. Similar, perhaps, to the horn hit that was in Love Break. In the early 1990s, this engineer and Shep's personal assistant had a somewhat of a falling out with Shep, and they went their separate ways. Now we fast forward to the late 2000s, 2007, 8, somewhere in that neighborhood, 2009, maybe 2010, and that engineer that I told you about became a very successful businessman, the engineer who worked on Vogue and who worked on some other projects with Shep. And he and his company acquired the South Soul Orchestra catalog. And believing that Shep had sampled Love Break, the horn hit, in Vogue, he turned around and sued Shep, Madonna, and Warner Brothers for copyright infringement of Love Break. Yes, you heard me right. The engineer who worked with Shep on Vogue, 20 years later, turned around and his company bought the Salsal Orchestra catalog and then turned around and sued Shep, Madonna, 
and Warner Brothers for copyright infringement. You can't make this up. Not only did he do that, but he actually, right before the lawsuit, he actually hired Shep's former personal assistant as an employee and put him up as a witness. Yes, that happened. And then filed a lawsuit for copyright infringement. These facts all were part of the public record in the case. They were all laid out in detail in our papers. And I believe, and we said this in our papers in the case, I believe that he actually had the idea that he would buy the South Soul Orchestra catalog and then get his money back by suing Shep and Madonna and Warner Brothers for copyright infringement for the hit song Vogue and making millions of dollars by doing that. So Shep hires me to represent him. And this is important for later on, but um, Warner Brothers and Madonna are represented by a different law firm, although it was agreed that I would take the lead and do most of the work um, because under Shep's agreement with Warner Brothers Music, Shep owed indemnification if work that he delivered infringed on another work, which means Shep could be liable for Warner's attorney's fees in the event of a finding of copyright infringement. And so what were our defenses? Our defenses were, one, it was not a sample of Love Break, that Shep did not actually sample his own work that he had worked on. But number two, that even if it were, which it wasn't, that it was not copyright infringement because it was de minimis. It was a de minimis alleged lifting of the sound recording. And of course, my opponents responded by saying, huh, what? Court, this is the same Richard Bush arguing de minimis that won the Dimension Films case where there was a finding that there can be no de minimis defense to a sound recording infringement claim. And I responded that, yes, Your Honor, I did um, win that case, and we did argue that. But I did point out that since that case, other courts have been critical of it. The Ninth Circuit in California, where this case was pending, um, had never followed it. And that here are all the other cases that say that a de minimis analysis should be applied even in the context of a sound recording claim. And therefore, if your honor follows this precedent, which is Ninth Circuit precedent and other uh, precedent, that um, it wasn't a sample, but this one second horn hit is de minimis. And on summary judgment, the court dismissed the case on de minimis grounds, and it was appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And we argued the case before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the court, in a two-to-one decision, affirmed the district court with one judge dissenting and saying that the Dimension Films case should be followed, and that if it is proven that this was a digital lifting of the sound recording of Love Break, 
that it should constitute copyright infringement under the Dimension Films analysis. So if this case ever goes to the Supreme Court, I guess I can argue both sides and not lose. Now, if that were the end of the story, that would be interesting enough, I think. Winning both sides of an issue in two different cases, I think is a great example of blurred laws and a personal example at that. But guess what? The story wasn't yet over. After we won the case and after the case got dismissed, we did not get attorney's fees awarded and Warner came after Shep for attorney's fees. The lawyer for Madonna and the law firm for Madonna and Warner came after Shep for attorney's fees, claiming they had incurred nearly $800,000, I believe, in attorney's fees. We responded by saying um, we won. There was no breach of any warranty. And we said that the agreement between Shep and Warner required a breach of a warranty, that is that he did not deliver infringing material and that there was no breach because there was a finding that there was not infringement. And they were adamant that in fact that's not required and that just by being sued and incurring fees, Shep owed indemnification for their attorney's fees up to the deductible of their insurance policy, which was above what they had incurred in fees, and therefore Shep owed it. We said, no way, Jose, and filed a lawsuit in New York Federal Court, which is where a lawsuit was required to be filed under the contract, and asked the court to declare that Shep did not owe Warner those attorney's fees. Warner was actually holding all of Shep's royalties for Vogue and his other songs that fell under his agreement with Warner to try to satisfy that um, indemnification claim. The key language in Shep's agreement with Warner said as follows. Each party will indemnify the other against any loss or damage including court costs and reasonable attorney's fees due to a breach of this agreement by that party, which results in a judgment against the other party or which is settled with the other party's prior written consent not to be unreasonably withheld. In addition, Pettibone's indemnity shall extend to the deductible under Warner's errors and omissions policy without regard to judgment or settlement. Each party is entitled to be notified of any action against the other brought with respect to the song Vogue and to participate in the defense thereof by counsel of its choice at its sole cost and expense. The title of that provision was entitled Breach of Warranties. We contended that that language was clear, that Shep only owed indemnification in the event of a breach of a warranty, that is, by delivering infringing goods, that he breached no warranty, and therefore he did not owe Warner indemnification. Warner focused solely on the second 
sentence of what I just read, which said, in addition, petty bones indemnity shall extend to the deductible under Warner's errors and omissions policy without regard to judgment or settlement. We said you can't look at that sentence and pull it out of context, that this was a breach of warranty provision, that this that the first sentence, which says that indemnification is owed in the event of a breach of this agreement, and the third sentence, which says that each party is entitled to counsel of its choice at its sole cost and expense, meant that indemnification was only owed in the event of breach, and that Warner, while free to hire its own law firm, did so at its own cost and expense. We also said that that second sentence doesn't say petty bones indemnity shall extend to the deductible under Warner's errors and omissions policy without regard to breach, which it could have said, but it just said without regard to judgment or settlement. The district judge actually ruled in Warner's favor and found that that second sentence was determinative and regardless of how ambiguous and confusing it was in context, that he was going to rule as a matter of law and as a matter of contract interpretation that Shep owed Warner indemnification up to the level of the deductible without regard to breach. In our view, reading the word breach into that sentence. We, of course, appealed. And the Court of Appeals, in a written decision, had no trouble reversing the district court and actually entering judgment in our favor. The court ruled that the entire contract must be read as a whole, that the second sentence does not obviate the need for a breach, that at best it is entirely ambiguous and confusing, and that indemnification has to be clear and unambiguous. In other words, if someone's going to claim that someone owes them indemnification, that has to be spelled out clearly and unambiguously, and this wasn't. And the court reversed and held that Shep did not owe indemnification because he won the copyright infringement claim, he did not breach any warranties and representations, and that Warner needed to pay Shep the royalties they were holding. It would literally be impossible for me to make these facts up, the facts underlying the case, and um, what happened, but it is, I think, from the Dimension Films case to the decision in the copyright infringement case uh, brought with respect to the song Vogue, and then, of course, this decision on indemnification and Shep's royalties at issue, a perfect example, a trifecta of blurred laws and life.